Well, let's take a few moments in, uh, in just looking at the tyranny of euthanasia where others get to decide. And, and right now it is still in the position of, generally speaking, the individual decides for themselves how they want to die, basically. Euthanasia actually comes from a Greek word meaning easy death. It's also known, again, as compassionate, a mercy killing, and so on. And to be fair, it, on the surface, seems compassionate. I mean, we do this to animals if they're suffering. We want to end their suffering and so on. And so this is the kind of logic that is used. There are different types of euthanasia. Active euthanasia provides drugs or some, it administers means by which a patient dies before their natural time. Uh, assisted suicide is a close cousin to this type of killing, right? Where we assist an individual in committing suicide, taking their own life. Again, this goes against the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, you shall not take life, even your own life. Uh, the other kind of euthanasia is passive euthanasia, where we actually withhold natural necessities like food and water and so on from an individual until they die, um, not of their terminal illness, but of starvation or of deprivation of some other kind. That's very different from what Peter Singer was talking about when he said, we're already going down this road by you know, pulling the plug on the ventilator, pulling the plug on life support and so on. No, we're not. And doctors will tell you the difference between the two. There's a very big difference between withholding natural necessities to sustain life and actually removing extraordinary measures that are merely sustaining suffering, but are doing nothing to heal the individual at all. That's a very different thing. So we need to decipher between the two. Um, and uh, there's some very helpful, I was, I was listening again, I was listening to an interview of a ICU doctor, Christian lady. She writes a lot on the American side and the Gospel Coalition about these subjects. She had some very helpful uh, articles on this and um, some interviews. Can't remember her name. I think her first name was Catherine. Can't remember her last name. I'd have to go look it up again later on. But there is a, a distinction between the two. But the thing is, what Dawkins and Singer were both talking about was, you know, the argument that comes up, well, the door is cracked open with euthanasia and what will come after it. Well, that has historical support. I noticed on CBC, and I actually have numbers here. This is Ontario statistics from the corner of those who have been euthanized in Ontario by uh, made, made medical assistance in dying is what they've decided to call it. That's what the government calls it. Again, they're dressing it up, putting a little makeup, lipstick on a pig, right? Total number of cases completed in Ontario, like the way they say these things, cases completed in Ontario. There have been 7,549 individuals killed in Ontario by euthanasia, by being euthanized. Just this year, till April, don't have any stats since April, but number of cases year to date uh, for the first four months of this year was 853 individuals. That's just in Ontario itself. Every province has different numbers. Number of cases just in April was 241. Essex County, uh, I think the first four months, 179. Okay, so this is happening around us. This is the real deal. And it, 
And CBC did say, you know, it, it, there's nothing to prove. There's nothing to prove that this is opening the door to anything further, you know, killing disabled people and so on. Well, there kind of is. Because this happened in Germany long, not long before, but years before the Nazis came to power. It was already happening. Uh, there was already acceptance taking place in the medical world, in uh, the German medical field. They're beginning to accept sterilization and euthanasia of persons with chronic mental illnesses. Long before the Holocaust of, Holocaust of Jews and, and Polish people, the Nazis were exterminating the elderly, the sick, the senile, the mentally handicapped, defective, epileptics, World War I amputees, even bedwetters. Francis Schaeffer again, the fork is three-pronged. First, arbitrary sociological law by the courts and legislators. That's what we're seeing. That's where this came from. Law, not based on God's rules, but based on man's thinking. Second, the changed attitude of the medical profession. The changed attitude of the medical profession. So doctors start to think, okay, this, you know, the whole Hippocratic oath, do no harm. Eh, maybe this is merciful and we're going to do it. Actually, I, I was reading articles that in Ontario, doctors, uh, I think it was like 65% of doctors are, do not want to be performing euthanasia on patients. They don't believe it's ethical. Uh, that's pretty interesting, but guess what, guess what the courts are telling them they have to do? If you don't want to perform them, you have to refer them to someone who will. And if you don't want to do that, good luck being a doctor. You see where this is going. Third, Schaefer says, the general apathy and selfishness of the population. This is summing it up. He was saying this back in the 70s. The general apathy and selfishness of the population, which in the name of rights, grasps at more and more hedonistic lifestyle, which includes not just how we live, but also how we die. I'm going to show you a couple of videos and we're going to take the time to watch these and they're, they're a bit heavy. Um, the first one is a girl by the name of Brittany Maynard who moved out to Oregon. I think she moved from California, actually, ironically, because Oregon had laws in place uh, for her to take her own life and uh, basically by doctor-assisted suicide. And uh, the first one is a video of her talking about what she planned to do the second one is if another lady by the name of Kara Tippetts. Kara Tippetts was the wife of a pastor and they had moved to Colorado to plant a church. And not long after they moved there, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and she was in the process of dying as well. And uh, the second one has to do with her. There's a documentary out about her. And then uh, I'll notice the, these two individuals, their paths actually do cross at one point while they were... Uh, approaching their own deaths. But let's, uh, let's watch. The first one is Brittany Maynard here. So if November 2nd comes along and I've passed, I hope my family is still proud of me and the choices I made. And if November 2nd comes along and I'm still alive, I know that we'll just still be moving forward as a family like out of love for each other and that that decision will come later. 
when people criticize me for not, um, not like waiting longer or, you know, whatever they've decided is best for me. <laughs> um, it hurts because really I risk it. I risk it every day, every day that I wake up. And I do it because I still feel good enough and I still have enough joy and I still laugh and smile with my family and friends enough that it doesn't seem like the right time right now. But um, it will come because I feel myself getting sicker. It's happening each week. I still get out and do what I can. I walk with my husband, I walk with my family and my dogs. Um, and things like that bring me the greatest um, feelings of health that I have these days. Um, but really it's been just since January 1st, since my diagnosis, it's like uh, health-wise things keep just getting worse. But I guess that's what happens when you're terminally ill is you get sicker and sicker. It sounds so cliche. We take things one day at a time, but it's like, it's, that's the only way to get through this. Um, you take, uh, take away all of the material stuff, all the nonsense that we all seem to latch onto as a society and you realize that those moments are really what matter. So the worst thing that could happen to me is that I wait too long because I'm trying to seize each day, but that I somehow have my autonomy taken away from me by my disease because of the nature of my cancer. So to really talk to you about the most terrifying aspects most recently, my most terrifying set of seizures was about a week or so ago. I had two in a day, which is unusual. And I remember looking at my husband's face at one point and thinking, I know this is my husband, but I can't say his name. And um, ended up going to the hospital for that one. It's a weird feeling to wake up every day and be in my body because it feels so different than it did just a year ago. To be perfectly candid, in the last three months, I've gained over 25 pounds and over nothing I've put in my mouth except for prescription medications. I don't like being photographed, I don't like being filmed, and I, I don't like spending a lot of time looking in the mirror. And I'm not full of self-hate or loathing. It's just that my body has changed so quickly you really kind of stop recognizing yourself in a way, and that's very personal. But I think sometimes people look at me and they think, well, you don't look as sick as you say that you are. Um, which hurts to hear because when I'm having a seizure and I can't speak afterwards, I certainly feel as sick as I am. It's not my job to tell her how to live and it's not my job to tell her how to die. It's my job to love her through it. Well, if all my dreams came true, I would somehow uh, survive this. But um, I most likely won't. So beyond that, I am. Um, Having been an only child for my mother, I want her to recover from this and 
not break down, you know, not suffer from any kind of depression. Um, my husband is such a lovely man. I want him to, um, you know, I understand everyone needs to grieve, but I want him to be happy. So I want him to have a family. And I know that might sound weird, but there's no part of me that wants him to live out the rest of his life just missing his wife. So I hope he uh, moves on and becomes a father. My goal, of course, is to influence this policy for positive change, um, and I would like to see all Americans have access to the same healthcare rights. But beyond that public policy goal, my goals really are quite simple, and they mostly do boil down to my, my family and friends, and making sure they all know how important they are to me and how much I love them. Okay, so you can, you can see that she's trying to sell the idea and um, you can't imagine the pain that she and her family were facing at the time. And the most disastrous part of it is they're facing it without Christ. I want to show you another video of Kara Tippett's and see if you notice a little contrast in the, the difference between the two. At this point in our life, this is not supposed to be the story. The world says I should be angry, that I should be shaking my fist at God. I didn't think at 38 I'd be battling cancer, but I am. And so I need to find contentment in that place. I want to be able to share this story that suffering isn't a mistake and it isn't the absence of God's goodness because he's present in pain. I love you. I love you, reader. Thanks for sharing my story. Thanks for not only buying my book for, for yourself, but for friends who need encouragement and um, your words, your emails, they blow me away, just blow me away. I've had a few interview contacts and a magazine by face just came out where I'm on the cover. And then I'm just still plodding along writing my other two books. Care was always easy for me, always easy. And so my journey there to be part of her cancer journey was just a continuation of the commitment that sometimes when you meet people, you don't know where it's going to take you. Now with the second book, wherever you go, there's Karen Tippins, there's Karen Tippins. So it's, like, it's like being with someone famous. No. Oh, it is. It was like a miracle that suddenly so many people were listening. They were listening and paying attention to this young mom as she battled cancer. Cancer has given me a credibility that I never expected to have. So knowing my own mortality, knowing that I'm dying, the the sense that the love that I give 
will live beyond me, especially the love that comes from God. You know, as cancer finds new corners every day in my body, I realize it's all I've got. Jesus is all I've got. And not only is he all I have, he's all I have to give. And so that's my question to you. Um, How today, how today can you move past your own comfort, your own expectation of what today is to be or this week is to be and um, let Jesus love you enough that that love spills onto somebody else. It's stunning. She just had the words. So ladies and gentlemen, would you welcome Kara Tippetts for this morning? Little contrast. Those two ladies did cross paths uh, at one point in an open letter that Kara, having heard Brittany's story and heard how she was advocating for uh, euthanasia and so on, death with dignity, they call it in the U.S. Again, another term that glosses over death. Uh, She wrote her an open letter sharing the gospel with her and at the same time trying to get her to change her mind And uh, this is just a brief section out of that letter. But she said, As I sat on the bed of my young daughter praying for you, I wondered over the impossibility of understanding that one day the story of my young daughter will be made beautiful in her living because she witnessed my dying. The last kiss, the last warm touch, the last breath matters. But it is never intended, it was never intended for us to decide when that last breath is breathed. Knowing Jesus, knowing that he understands my hard goodbye, he walks with me in my dying, my heart longs for you to know him in your dying, because in his dying, he protected my living, my living beyond this place. Brittany, when we trust Jesus to be the carrier, protector, redeemer of our hearts, death is no longer dying. My heart longs for you to know this truth, this love, this forever living. That pretty much sums up the contrast between a society without God deciding we want to die on our own terms, we don't want to look at the ugliness of death in the face, and we don't want to trust God and his sovereignty over it and people who enter it knowing that the Lord is their shepherd and that he walks with them through the valley of the shadow of death. Brittany Maynard died November 1st, 2014 by taking a pill. Kara Tippett's trusted God to walk with her through the process of dying and she passed away March 22nd of the next year. There is the issue of suicide, just briefly to note. um, This devastated our church community in Chatham. I think it might have been 2011, I can't remember the exact year. Um, It rocked our world when a young man took his life. He had been in my Sunday school class. I knew him very well. Um, He was in university at the time, and none of us saw it coming. And I noticed at the time there was a string of young people, Christian, from Christian homes, that were taking their own life. And there's a lot of discussion about what is going on, what is happening. There are a number of causes 
for it. We'll look at suicide a little bit later um, from a theological standpoint. But if at all there is an anxiety, a hopelessness, a withdrawal, anger, ideas that you're entertaining in your mind, a sense of recklessness, some of these games that come up on social media. There was a choking game at one time that kids thought was fun and kids lost their lives over. Or just mood changes. You need help. And I'm telling you now, you're not alone. Reach out and find that help. I, I learned through that whole experience, you don't know if the person next to you is having these thoughts or not quite often. And we need to be very, very uh, insightful, alert to the fact that there is a lot of despair in our society and Christian circles are not immune to this. All right, I want to move on to, uh, and that's the devastation of suicide. So that was the fifth one. By the way, there were a few questions for Q&A tonight. Um, there weren't many of them. Hopefully we get to them, but we'll see how this goes. I, I think this is very important content. So we're going to look at the sacredness of life and the sovereignty of God. How do we respond? How does the Bible speak into all of this in a culture of death? How are we supposed to navigate this? Does the Bible say anything about abortion? It, it, this has shocked me. I was noticing some Facebook, Facebook responses to some articles on abortion um, today from Christians who've gone to seminary saying certain things about abortion and historic Christian views of abortion that were shocking to me, kind of excusing views that were pro-choice and some challenges going on about, you know, show me the, show me the scriptures, verses that talk specifically about abortion and so on. Well, that's scary stuff when that's starting to penetrate church discussions, theological discussions. First one we want to notice, obviously, is the wisdom of God will produce glory from all of history. God is in every moment. Romans eleven thirty three, actually verse 36 sums it up. From him, through him, and to him are all things. Every event that happens in life will be used to bring him glory. To him be glory forever. God is sovereign over life. God is sovereign over death. We must bow to that authority. That's number one. God's sovereign wisdom will produce glory from all of history. He's in the good. He's in the bad. He's in every moment. And as Christians, we need to have that locked in our hearts. We need to be anchored to that truth. There's not a moment in our life, no matter how dark it gets, that God is not in control. Corey Ten Boom used to say, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. And that's the truth. And she lived it. She experienced it. Secondly, humanity reflects the creator's wisdom. Humanity reflects the creator's wisdom. The value of personhood is not defined by size, ability, or geography. Inside the womb or outside the womb. It is defined by the one who created life. Psalm 139 is probably the best description of God's view of what is going on in the womb in, at conception. The psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You knitted me. That, that takes some work. That takes some creativity. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. 
My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven. That looks like he took the time and detail to weave in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. This is before they had ultrasounds, by the way. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The sperm has 23 chromosomes. The mother's egg has 23 chromosomes. And when the sperm and egg are united at conception, those chromosomes combine to make, do the math, 46 chromosomes in a single cell that now has all the DNA, all the genetic code that will guide the process of making a human being. Let's talk about DNA for a moment. It was discovered back in 1953 by James Watson and Francis Crick. They discovered this instruction code that was used for building and replicating all living things. DNA is pretty incredible because you can't see it. It's very tiny. Well, you can't see with the naked eye. It's very tiny, but every cell of your body, doesn't matter what cell it is, has that DNA, that genetic code in it that tells it what to do and what it is supposed to be tells it how to replicate and so on. Looks like the twisted ladder. You've seen the helix, I'm sure. The sides of the ladder are alternating molecules, right? Doing this. And the rungs of those ladders are four nitrogen bases. They are lettered A, T, C, and G, generally. I'm not gonna name them. Um, and just like the English language, it's a genetic code. It's like an alphabet. And it's writing out a message with these four letters. Each rung has those four proteins on it. And the, the sequence of that code determines who you are and how your cells replicate and so on. And so uh, Frank Turek and Norman Geisler said that even staunch Darwinist Richard Dawkins, who we saw tonight, professor of zoology at Oxford University, admits that the message found in just the cell nucleus of a tiny amoeba is more than all 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica combined. And the entire amoeba has as much information. So an amoeba, it's pretty small, pretty tiny. It's not very much. But it has as much information in its DNA as 1,000 complete sets of Encyclopedia Britannica. Dawkins wrote about that in his book, The Blind Watchmaker. In other words, if you were to spell out all of the A, T, C, and G in the unjustly called primitive amoeba, as Dawkins describes it, the letters would fill a thousand complete sets of encyclopedia. I don't think you could fit those in the room. Maybe. That's, that's a lot. That's 30,000 books, and they're big books. And that's all in tiny little amoeba. That's incredible. And it reflects the glory of God and the wisdom of God. And so Geisler and Turek conclude, life is clearly more than chemicals. Life contains a message, DNA, that is expressed in, in the chemicals. But most chemicals cannot cause the message any more than the chemicals in ink and paper can cause the sentences on the page. A message points to something beyond chemicals, clearly. He has intricately woven us, and it begins at conception. The author of life has defined life at conception, and personhood at conception 
How dare we tamper with his masterpiece? The third one, humanity reflects the creator himself. Humanity reflects the creator himself, not just his wisdom, but who he is. We've looked at these verses in other nights. God said, let us make man in our image. The imago Dei, the image of God, does three things. First of all, it resembles God, resembles him in a number of ways. If we want to know what God is like, look at human beings and you'll see something of that. The fact that we are spiritual, the fact that we are personal or self-conscious, the fact that we can make choices and deliberate, the fact that we are relational, we're meant for interpersonal relationships, the fact that we are immortal, the fact that we are powerful in the sense that we have dominion. All of those things resemble our creator. They reflect the God who made us. It's a resemblance of God. Not only that, but the fact that we are made in his image is also, it has a relational aspect to it, right? Humans have unique relational qualities that animals don't have. And they reflect the relational character of God. So God has attributes. Some of them are not communicable. The fact that God is infinite, um, that God is always there and so on, always present and omnipresent, those are not communicable attributes, but he has communicable ones like love, right? And, uh, and so on, that, and mercy and uh, whatever else that are relational. And we reflect that in his image. As well, we are representative. Being in his image, we are representative. In other words, we are God's representative to the rest of the world. He gave us dominion to care for his creation, what he created. He set us over that. We are made in the image of God. We are not made the way Dawkins and Singer were speaking. We're not made as just animals. In fact, Dawkins at one point in that video, if you watch the whole thing, I think it's like 45 minutes long, but he talks about, you know, well, the difference between human beings and the the other animals and the reason why we probably shouldn't go around killing people is because, well, human beings can remember the past, can reflect on the past and can plan for the future. Animals don't do that. Say, well, I'm pretty sure you're describing a human soul. You just don't want to say it. Just the same way that he describes human DNA and says it's anything but primitive. You can, you know, the DNA inside an amoeba can fill a thousand encyclopedias. Dawkins sees all of that and still says, but we don't need God to explain it. It's incredible the amount of deliberate blindness these men have to have to choose not to see what's really there. It's incredible. Humanity reflects the creator himself. Next, humanity is unity of body and soul. Now, this is important for us to understand. Now, in scripture, sometimes there's big discussions about all of this. We're not going to get into all those discussions. Quite frankly, we're simplifying it, but about, you know, body, soul, spirit, and so on. What is the spirit? What is the soul? And so on. But Many theologians will say it really comes down to our body and our soul united together. Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. So that's really his physical body. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He did something with us that he didn't do with the animals and man became a living creature. He brought life to the body with the soul, body and soul. When the soul leaves the body, 
the body is now lifeless, right? You see it. It doesn't respond to anything anymore because the soul, the real person is gone. They've left the body, but body is unity or, or sorry, humanity is unity of body and soul. It's very important for us to understand that in the beginning, that was what God designed and that's what God uh, wanted, right? That's what he purposed for his original design of human beings, body and soul united together. Michael Horton, theologian said, the real self is the whole self, body and soul. That's what it's supposed to be. Some view the body as a curse and trapping the soul within, right? Some philosophers look at it, if only we could just set our soul free and wouldn't that be wonderful? And some differentiate between the body is temporal and the soul is eternal. So only what you do that's spiritual really matters. What you do with your body doesn't. And the scriptures refute that as well and say, no, that's not right. Body and soul together, humanity, that's what makes a full person. But death, here's the next point. Death is the unnatural separation of body and soul. This was never intended to be apart from the fall. Now, of course, we get into the sovereignty of God and we understand that God permitted such things in his sovereign will, in his permissive will. But in 2 Corinthians 5, we have a description by Paul of basically being absent from the body. What is absent from the body? Well, the soul is absent from the body. Paul actually gives us three scenarios in 2 Corinthians 5. Scenario one is, Fallen body and soul together. That's you and me tonight. That's where we are right now. Presently, you know, our our bodies are fallen. They're prone to sin. They're broken. They get diseases. They suffer. We feel pain and so on. That's where we're at right now. That's not all bad, right? We can enjoy this somewhat. We can make something enjoyable of our life, enjoy our families, enjoy relationships and so on. But option two, Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5 is the soul away from the body or being unclothed. He calls it unclothed. And well, he says it's better. It's actually better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. It's better, but it's not the final thing. If it was, it would be incomplete. That's why he calls it being unclothed. Nobody wants that. That's not final. But the third option is a resurrected or redeemed body and soul reunited. That's the goal. That's where we're heading. That's what the resurrection is. That's why the apostles were so adamant about refuting any kind of spiritual resurrection that did not include the physical resurrection of Jesus. That's 1 Corinthians 15, right? Paul was making it very clear, clear to the Corinthian church, the physical resurrection of Jesus had to happen because if you and I are not physically raised and reunited, then we don't have anything worth living for. He makes that very clear. We are looking forward to the redemption of our bodies and the reuniting of body and soul together. And that's what Romans 8, we looked at last week with the environment and creation groaning. They're waiting. We wait eagerly, Paul said in Romans 8, for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. I'm reading through Job right now. Just the other day, I read Job 19 and these verses, they hit me probably because I'm looking at this right now. But Job said, oh, that my words were written. Well, ironically, they were. (laughs) He just didn't know it yet. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. 
Oh, that with an iron pen, and he wasn't just saying, oh, I wish I was famous, you know, and I left a legacy. He wasn't saying, he's saying, oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. In other words, what he's about to say, he's saying, I wish this was engraved somewhere and would never be erased. And guess what? It isn't erased. It's in God's word. Listen to this. For I know, Job says, that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Whom shall I see for myself? Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes, my physical eyes, shall behold, and not another, and my heart faints within me. Isn't that a great outlook? And Job, where did he learn that? Where did he learn to look forward to that? He learned to look forward to that in suffering, didn't he? Which leads us to the next point. Suffering is valuable for the child of God. Romans 5, Paul talks about being justified by faith. And the very first thing he says about the experience of being justified by faith, uh, standing in Christ and so on through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, Paul says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And this is a common theme throughout the New Testament. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And anybody who suffered knows this. And character produces hope. And that hope is, again, is not just wishful thinking. We looked at this last week. That hope does not put us to shame, doesn't disappoint us, doesn't let us down. Because Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How do we know, by the way, that God loves us? Well, he doesn't leave us hanging because in Romans 5, again, if we kept reading, he tells us in verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us, not by making us rich, not by making us healthy, folks, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is his proof of love. And if you had asked Paul in prison, shackled to a Roman soldier, beaten and near death, if you had asked him, Paul, why would you still think that God loves you? You have nothing. For all the work you've done, you have nothing. Why would you still be confident? He'd say, because Jesus died for me, period. That's it. And that anchor of the Christian faith is what keeps us through suffering. It produces endurance which produces character, which produces hope. And that hope will never disappoint us because the Holy Spirit is just spilling God's love all over our heart. And there's an absolute conviction of that. All right, there's an absolute conviction of that. The cross proves God's love. Folks, that's the kind of Christian faith we need if we're gonna live in this world. We, need, we can't have a light inch deep uh, Christian faith that just loves to sing praises with the Christians, but can't take any kind of suffering. No, suffering is valuable for the child of God. It produces a depth to our faith. Um, did I have more about that? I probably did. Uh, but let's move on. The time and manner of death are for God to decide. The time and manner of death are for God to decide, not us. Scripture does have a lot to describe about suicide. Any individual who did commit suicide, it was in the context that was very negative. Uh, Saul, King Saul, committed suicide at the end of his life after visiting a witch and so on. Um, took his own sword and fell upon it. 
Judas Iscariot is another one that walked out after he betrayed Jesus. He left and he went and hung himself. Suicide is sin. It is, the breach of, it is a breach of the sixth commandment that you shall not murder. But folks, it is sin that Christians can still commit. It is covered by the blood of Christ, just like other sins. William Cooper, I don't know if you, you know the hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood, kind of graphic language, right? Drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. I grew up singing hymns like that. William Cooper spent most of his life in an asylum, institutionalized, and uh, had attempted suicide a number of times before he was a Christian and even after he was a Christian and struggled and battled with depression and anxiety. In fact, that hymn was written in response to being so overwhelmed with guilt for having attempted suicide, wondering how God could ever forgive him. And he came back to the cross again and understood that the blood of Christ washes my sin away. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, right? The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sin away, right? So there are stories like that in history. That's why I love history. You go back, no, nothing that we struggle with today is new. It's all been done before. There are good faithful men who begged for death at times. Moses did. He got so fed up with the people he, was, he seemed to be carrying. He said, I'm not able to carry all these people alone. The burden's too heavy for me. Numbers 11. If you'll treat me like this, God, kill me at once. Just take my life. If I find favor in your sight, then I may not see my wretchedness. Elijah did something very similar after the Mount Moriah situation. After everything, the, the fire that came down and consumed his altar, and he went and he, when he realized it didn't do anything for the culture at that time, or it didn't seem to in his eyes, in his thinking, he went, he sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough now, Lord, take away my life, for I'm now no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Jonah did something similar. Jonah was angry with God. He was just purely angry with God. Didn't like the way God treated his enemies, basically, the Assyrians, and giving them forgiveness. He was angry. And he said, therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me. But you know, all these men, all these faithful men knew something. They knew. Even though they're, notice each of them, they're, they're asking God, please, I don't want my life anymore. Take my life from me. They all knew that that was God's to control. When I die, the last breath I take, that is God's to control. That is not mine. That's why I come back to, again, if anyone in this room is struggling with that level of despair in your life now, or you know someone who is, the gospel answers. The gospel shines light into that darkness. But you need to reach out for help. You need to find help. Help is available. And there is hope for those who are in despair. I say that, by the way, as someone who has struggled with depression in the past and having to work through some of the painful details of that for myself. And I can tell you tonight firsthand, there is hope and there are answers in the gospel. And, uh, and so I want, I, I, I want you to know that. Some of you might be wondering, why on earth? Why, why keep talking about this? 
it's a real thing. It's a real deal. And you never know. You never know who's sitting beside you or what's going on. Your eternal destiny, here's the next one. Your eternal destiny is forever. Sacredness of life and the sovereignty of God. Don't mess around with your death. Where you're going, you're not coming back from. It's forever. Scripture offers two outcomes. Heaven, eternal communion with God, or hell, eternal separation from God. Two outcomes, period. There's no middle ground. There's no such thing in Scripture as purgatory. It's not there. Scripture talks clearly about two places. Luke 16, Jesus said, talked about a rich man and Lazarus, not the same Lazarus we were talking about earlier, but the rich man died. Or the, the, the poor man, Lazarus, died, first of all, and he was carried by the angels into Abraham's, uh, to Abraham's side, the idea of paradise. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, lifted, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. Two options, that's it. Revelation 20, same thing. Uh, Revelation 20 and Revelation 21, there are two outcomes. It's either the great white throne judgment and the lake of fire, the second death, or the new heavens and the new earth for those who are believers born again. Don't trivialize death. The outcome is irreversible. We need to remember this as Christians and not dress it up. Jesus said, well, I mean, John 3.16, not quoted a lot anymore, but John 3.16 very clearly states that God loved the world. He gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, option one, but have eternal life, option two. It's one or the other. Two outcomes, and they're forever. That's pretty serious stuff. That leaves us with how we speak life in a culture of death. How do we do this? Well, first of all, we appeal to the image bearer's conscience. We don't need to get into intellectual discussions about ethics and right and wrong. We can, sure, if you want to, but we have to remember Romans 2 clearly teaches us that even the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires. Even watching Peter Singer and Richard Dawkins talk about morals is interesting because it actually just proves they have a law written on their hearts. It's there. They can't deny it. And their conversation together with each other about ethics and about what's moral and what's not moral and so on, even though we don't obviously agree with the outcome of that conversation, the very, the very reality that they're talking about it reflects the fact that there is a law written on their hearts. And at some point, you can pin it down. It's a God-given witness. At some point, you can pin down the fact that individuals have broken the law written on their hearts. So we don't need to waste a lot of time. I shouldn't say waste, spend a lot of time in intellectual arguments over creation versus evolution and boundaries of sexuality and things like that. Those are all relevant topics we can have. We can explain the Christian point of view, but it's not going to create a lot of conviction in people's hearts. It's not until we actually touch the conscience of that individual that they're going to say, hmm, I got a problem and I may need someone to fix it for me. I may need a savior. So for instance, if you're arguing over the the ethics of aborting babies or the results of rape and so on or about whether or not it's the mother's choice or whose choice it is, you might just want to 
show them the violence of abortion images and say, is this what you mean by choice? Is this what you're referring to? That a mother should choose this? Kind of short circuits the, the conversation. It short circuits to their conscience. It's a very effective tool in witnessing to people, using the conscience. It's on your side. It's the one thing inside them, internal to them, that is on your side. And you'll often hear this with unbelievers. They'll start excusing themselves. Well, nobody's perfect. They'll say things like that. Well, that might be true, but what about you? What if you have to stand before God and God's a perfect judge? Well, nobody's perfect. Yeah, but that means you're not perfect. You've got a problem. What are you going to do about it? And, you know, and so on. Appeal to the conscience. Next, uh, let's see here. Two, keep the resurrection of Jesus central. I'm going to go right back to John 11. Jesus had a conversation with Martha before he spoke with Mary, and Martha had said basically the same thing. Lord, Lord if you'd come, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus has a little conversation with her about her brother rising again, and she says, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's still thinking resurrection's a date on a calendar. She doesn't realize, and this is John's point all through the Gospel of John. He's just continually saying, it's like the theme of the Gospel of John is, do you realize who you're talking to? And all the way through, he keeps revealing himself, the I am, I am, I am. You see that with the Samaritan woman, you see it with Nicodemus, you see it all the way through the Gospel of John. And here's Martha, she's, here. she's still thinking of the resurrection, it's a long way in the future. She's got it detached from Jesus, right? And the next thing Jesus says to her is, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. It's not a date on a calendar, it's in a person. And that person is standing right in front of you. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The resurrection was closer than Martha realized. It wasn't a date somewhere far off on the calendar. It was standing right in front of her. And it wasn't long before he was saying, Lazarus, come forth with authority. He commanded death and death lost. And he that was dead came forth came out. Eugene O'Neill, the playwright, uh, he wrote a, a play called Lazarus Laughed, and it's kind of, it's kind of satirical. Um, it, it imagines life, what life was like in Bethany after Lazarus tells, you know, what is on the other side of death. So he's come back now, and uh, he's alive, and his message is, the grave is as empty as the doorway is empty. It is a portal through which we move into greater and finer life. Therefore, there is nothing to fear. Our great agenda in this part of life is to learn to accept and learn to trust. We are here to learn to love more fully. There is only life. There is no death. Okay, so that's Eugene O'Neill's interpretation of it. But this is what's interesting. So Caligula, one of the most fearsome Roman emperors, is the one that O'Neill chooses to be in this play. And he sees Lazarus as a political threat because now the town of Bethany isn't afraid of death and the Roman emperor needs its citizens to be afraid of death in order to educate them and teach them to be good citizens and so on. So he's very, he's very threatened by this um, since death is used to educate the masses. So he threatens Lazarus. You have a choice, he says. You will either stop this infernal laughter right this minute or I'm going to have to put you to death. 
To which Lazarus replies, laughing. Go ahead and do what you will. There is no death. There is only life. <laughs> Lazarus is laughing. Why? He's been there already. He's already died once. He's been through it. And I didn't see Lazarus through scripture terrified of death anymore. He's been raised from the dead once. That's a pretty incredible story. The result is uh, the resurrection of Jesus has to remain the central focus of the good news we preach. We may have lost that. We may have emphasized too much on the death of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ and what he did without emphasizing the resurrection of Christ and how that is what will sustain us through suffering. We might be a people that laugh in the face of death as a result, like Lazarus, knowing Christ, the resurrection and the life. Number three, don't dress up death for your children. This is very important. Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, a time, there is a time to be born and a time to die. Our children need to learn this. I, I'm just speaking in way of, by way of observation. I mean, I grew up, we went to funerals. As children, we went to funerals. And um, my wife and I have never shied away from taking our kids to funerals. And standing in front of a open casket with our children saying, do you, do you know what's going on here? Do you know what's going on here? My two-year-old daughter, she had to stand at the open casket of her papa, my wife's stepdad who raised her, two years old. Sad moment, really sad moment. Do you know what's going on here? Papa's not there anymore. That's just a house. Papa's left the house. He's not there anymore. He's gone. He's with Jesus now. He's in a better place because he knows Jesus. It is one of the most effective education moments, educational moments you can give as a Christian parent to your kids. There is a time to die. We need to teach our children that life isn't all about your relationships now and the drama you're facing now. And whatever's going on at high school now, and whatever's happening in the culture right now, we are all facing, life is short. I remember being in a visitation line when I was a teenager. We had a friend whose father had been killed uh, by a drunk driver. And I was standing in line with a, a young guy who had been saved in university. And he grew up in a non-Christian home, never been to a funeral before. And he was standing in that line just terrified, terrified of getting up to the front and seeing an open casket. He didn't know what to expect. And again, it was all just welling up. Listen, as Christians, we need to teach our kids to not deny death and to not dress it up. It's not damaging to your child to let them see the reality of death. It gives meaning to life. It gives value to life. You're reminding them that life is what, what it's truly about. You're reminding them that sin is ugly. Sin is deadly. You're reminding them that life is short and what you do with it matters. Death is a great preacher. We must not dress up death for our children. We must not do what Aldous Huxley de described in Brave New World. We must not trivialize it or gloss it over or never talk about it. Take your kids to funerals. Let them see death. Let them see a casket being lowered into a grave and teach them about the resurrection that's coming. Teach them about the Christian hope. Because one of these days, it's gonna to happen to all of us. Every single one of us in this room, apart from the coming of Christ, 
we are going to die. We need to teach our kids to be ready. Hebrews 9 very clearly says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's coming. Next, be ready to support life with your actions. Be ready to support life with your actions. James 2, James made it very clear. If you speak good words, but you don't have actions to back them up, it's meaningless, completely meaningless. Faith without works is dead. And so we can talk a good talk about abortion and euthanasia and so on, and about facing suffering. But are we willing to support the expectant mother who has nowhere else to turn? I realize that society has made it very hard for us to adopt children. And that is a tragedy. They don't want Christians educating children. But are we willing to do what we can? Are we willing to take notice of the depressed teenager who needs connection or intervention? Are we willing to take action and be inconvenienced by it and support life in every way we can? Next, uh, embrace grief and suffering as opportunity. Psalm 23, you'll notice that David turns from uh, the Lord is my shepherd, talking about the third person, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. But when he gets to verse four and says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for now it's not the Lord is with me. Now it's you are with me. It's very personal. That's what happens in suffering. It is an opportunity to know God intimately. It's an opportunity to walk with God and to have him show up in your life in a way you've never experienced before. The psalmist becomes very, I don't know when David wrote this psalm. He could have written it a number of, on a number of occasions. It might've been maybe in a valley with a lion or a bear when he was younger. It could have been in the valley with Goliath. It could have been when he was running from uh, Absalom. He faced a lot of valleys of shadows of death in his life. And in every one, he got to know God just a little more intimately than before. He was a man after God's own heart. Where did he learn that? I'm going to suggest to you, he learned it in suffering. It's an opportunity. Embrace it. None of us want grief. None of us want suffering in our life. But it is a tremendous opportunity to hear God's voice and to experience him in new ways. I've seen this play out, by the way. I remember we were visiting and uh, my wife and I had gone to London to visit a lady who was dying with brain cancer. And of course, as you're going in, you're wondering what to say and what to do and how to comfort the family. And by the time we left that visit, it was her. She was the one encouraging us. She was the one lifting us up. She was the one filled with joy. She was the one that was singing or, or speaking to her loved ones with every word mattered. And, and it, we left, I remember just saying to my wife, how can any atheist see that and not know the power of God, that it exists? It was an absolute supernatural, miraculous moment in that hospital room with that lady, understanding that here is someone passing through great suffering, and yet she's walking it with Christ. And it was obvious, it was just radiating off of her that Jesus was with her every step of the way. Lastly, don't take life for granted. Romans 12, we've read on other nights, but Paul makes it very clear, the only response 
to the gospel with your body, your physical body that you have in this life right now is to present it as a living sacrifice. Don't, in the words of John Piper, waste your life. Don't waste your life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You do that, you will not waste your life. You don't do that, you will waste your life. Jesus redeemed your life. It's no longer yours if you are truly a born-again Christian. He, didn't re- he redeemed your life, well, from your sorry excuse for living it. You would have ruined it. I would have ruined mine. He redeemed it. He owns it now. You trust him with it. He'll make something out of it. Just like Jim Elliott said, I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. I'm not seeking a long life. I'm seeking a full one like you. I, there are, that, that's it um, for the whole series. We've made it through. I thought it was going to take less time tonight. Obviously it didn't. But what do you know? Um, we have had now 20 hours of class time together. And I do, my prayer is that it equips you to move out in this world with a stronger faith, with a more solid foundation. Um, there was one question. Can I do one question with you? It's 829. If you give me a few minutes, there was one question I think is probably, there, there weren't very many questions that came in. I was a little bit surprised by that, but there were a few. Um, if you feel like I haven't resolved something, uh, obviously you can email me or come and see me. We can have a chat. I love talking about these things. Uh, but someone did ask, how should students respond to teachers or authority figures presenting these false doctrines throughout the whole thing? I think that's a great question. Um, and I think there are some good examples in Scripture. Um, there, there are young people in Scripture that live through some very pagan education systems and... Um, and did very well, actually. They didn't comply. They were preserved. They made mistakes along the way. But how they handled their superiors is quite interesting. Samuel is one of them, lived in a corrupt religious system under Eli and his sons. It was pretty, pretty sick what was going on. And here's Samuel now given over to uh, this whole system. That's, that's what he's growing up watching. That's his spiritual example until God interrupts his life, which is what I pray for my own kids, right? That God will interrupt their life the way he interrupted Samuel's. And uh, the Lord calls to Samuel, interrupts his life, speaks to him, tells him exactly what's going to happen. And Samuel is extremely respectful, even with his authority. He doesn't come to Eli the next day and say, I got a message from the Lord last night. You need to hear this. He was trembling. He knew this is an authority figure in my life. So he went to him or he didn't go to him. Eli came to Samuel actually and kind of pulled it out of him, right? Little by little, you got to tell me. If you don't tell me, he kind of threatened him for it. And Samuel finally told him, but he told him in fear and trembling. And I think it's a good attitude to have, especially for young people living in or being in classroom settings. If you're going to go to university, responding to teachers, maybe responding to employers. Many of us, um, well, not myself now, but used to be this way. Um, responding to employers that might have a different worldview than me. We need to be very careful 
how we respond, very respectful, how we respond. Again, asking good questions. We looked at that in the first week. I think maybe Daniel is the best example of this. Uh, Daniel 1, Daniel chapter 1, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with wine that he drank. So he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, you have to understand, like any, you know, employee hierarchy, the chief of the eunuchs had basically a position that if Daniel failed, this chief failed, and it was off with his head, and he knew that. And Daniel understood that. So, of course, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. That's interesting. You see this with Jesus too. He's in the temple, and, and people who are watching him as a child, he grew up in, in stature. What's it say? He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. But back to Daniel, the chief of the eunuchs said, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should, why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Daniel doesn't answer disrespectfully. He doesn't answer uh, in, in a way that kind of laughs it off or what are you talking about? You don't even, you don't know what you're talking about. Get your worldview right or anything like that. He actually works with him. He works with this fear. He doesn't deny the fear. He doesn't trivialize the fear. But he says to him, uh, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat and so on be observed by you and just see what happens. And of course, God favored him and they looked healthier than the other young people. But you see how he was moving with respect. He was moving with discernment in these situations. And of course, Daniel, of course, is known as a man of prayer as well. So there's a lot of prayer that goes into this. I think in a classroom setting, one of the big areas that a student can influence is with other students. So if there are fellow students in the classroom that are afraid of getting a bad mark or afraid of certain things that are being said, I remember when I was in high school, those were things I could ask questions about, say, hey, did that make sense to you? What was just said there about the world being here forever? Do you think that's true? And talking to fellow students and, and you're doing what C.S. Lewis talked about, that idea of sabotage, right? Teachers might have a, an agenda in place. And yet, if you're speaking to other students in the classroom, you're probably not going to convince your teacher very, very well, other than convince them to give you a bad mark, um, which might be the case. If that's the way you want to go, you want to defy and not comply and do your thing, you can do that for sure. I would say in any case, don't ever lie. So don't write papers where you're, you're speaking things you don't believe is true. Um, you might say things in terms of, this is what our textbook said. You may want to clarify, but this is what I believe is true, and so on. I remember doing that, especially in my final year of high school. I really didn't care anymore. So I remember doing some papers where I was very explicit with my gospel views of things. I didn't get good marks on those papers. Um, but I got notes from my teacher. That was interesting. So there are ways to to do that, to navigate that. And guess what? You're never going to avoid this. It's going to come up. And as Christians, we are not ultimately supposed to isolate ourselves from society. 
That's not what we're here to do. It may be that we're forced to do that for, because of restrictions, because of mandates and so on. We may be forced to create a parallel economy. Yeah, absolutely. But just remember that the Great Commission was to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. So there's a balance. There's obviously a balance, and this takes wisdom and discernment. Um, so those are good examples. I, I think to go through Daniel 1, to go through 1 Samuel 3, you can see Moses in Egypt. It's the same thing. Go to Luke 2 and read about Jesus as a child. And, you know, what was he doing? Uh, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them. So he was listening. Here he is, son of God, listening to these teachers and asking them questions. There it is again. Ask good questions. If you're in class, you can ask good questions respectfully of your teacher in a way that might make them think, say, hmm, never, never looked at that before. That's an interesting perspective. You never know. You might have teachers that are belligerent and just activists, pure activists. You're not going to get very far with them. And I think at some point you just know not to waste your time. Um, there's no straight answer. It's kind of like a question of how do you know the will of God? You walk with God. You walk with God every day and you follow him. There's no straight answer to that. Um, no direct 10-step process. Neither is there to this. But I thought that was a good question. There are questions about the role of conscience. Um, just elaborating on that. Um, techno technocracy, uh, stakeholder capitalism. Um, again, I was going to look into some of these if we had time. But we don't, unfortunately. But there's so much to look into. I think we've seen that already. Um, but the Lord bless you and keep you as a result of these classes. And uh, may they be used for his glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful again for 10 weeks that we've been here. We have not been locked down. We have not been restricted from this place. Lord, there was a lot of uncertainty moving into this, just what might happen. But by your mercy... You've allowed this, and we want to give you thanks tonight. We want to give you praise and, and glory for that. And Lord, I, I'm just trusting that as a result of this and as a result of your word, uh, meeting the cultural issues of our time, that it becomes evident, Lord, that you're not uh, squeamish about these things, that you want to speak into this culture as you've always spoken into culture, and that we are your messengers. You've chosen us. We're not sure why, but you have chosen us in your sovereign will to move out into this world and just share and spread the good news of the resurrection of Christ. So help us, Lord, to speak life into death. Help us, Lord, to suffer well and to glorify you in our suffering. Lord, we want to walk with you like David did through the valley of the shadow of death. We want to move with you and know your closeness. And at the end of life, Lord, we want just to have you to... Take the world, but give me Jesus. That's all we want. So Lord, we ask you for this and we want to again just proclaim our love for you, our worship of you, and our desire that you would take our lives and use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.